This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, our hosts, Ann and Nick, are joined by the incomparable Betty Aldworth, Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS, or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelics Studies. An activist and advocate since she attended her first anti-nuke demonstration as a preteen, Betty has spent the last two decades as one of the leading voices around restorative justice and drug policy reform, advocating for safety, justice, and education within the cannabis and psychedelics spaces. In this conversation, Anne and Nick sit down with Betty to discuss why advocacy for marginalized groups is a core part of who she is, the important intersection of marketing and messaging that shapes these industries, what type of reform she would implement if she were President Biden's drug czar, and what's coming down the pipeline at MAPS. They also discussed the Psychedelics Science 2023 conference taking place this June in Denver, Colorado, and what attendees can expect from the world's largest gathering of the psychedelics community. For those interested in attending, be sure to use our discount code KCSA15 to get an additional 15% discount off your ticket. And as a special treat, this discussion includes our first ever surprise call-in where a special guest phones into our recording to ask Betty some additional questions about her work. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Betty Aldworth, Director of Communications and Marketing at MAPS. I am so, so excited for today's guest. She is um, a friend, a client, uh, and all around one of the smartest people I know in the space. Um, Betty Aldworth, the Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS. Betty, welcome to the Green Rush. I can't believe you haven't been on before. I'm really <laughs> excited to be on the Green Rush finally. How many years Yay! has it been? We've been I talking mean, about this for a long many, time. Too many. <laughs> and we've done the um, MJ Today 
pod together, but never this one together. So, um, and I'm excited cause you know, we're, you're my client. We talk a lot and this is going to be like us, like floating above all of that. Um, and kind of digging into, to you and to what's going on at maps. So, um, I guess with that, and we'll probably want to spend some time talking about our fruit trees for the whole audience. Oh to my hear. God. <laughs> Betty is also the greenest of green thumbs and my thumb is brown and wilty. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> um, but I want to dig in. You have, you were like, you basically came out of the womb as an activist. Um, and it's been at the core of who you are as a person, how it's guided your career. Can you talk about that path and what, what sparked you? Yeah. I mean, listen, my folks were hippies. Uh, my dad was an activist for a long time, you know, well before I came around. And um, when I was a, a little kid, we would go, we would, on Easter, we would do the traditional Easter egg hunt and all of that. And then we would truck out to the Nevada test site to do um, the annual protest of nuclear testing facilities. This was in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s. And Easter Sunday and, was the day to do that? <laughs> yeah, there was an annual protest out at, at, in Mercury, Nevada. So we would drive for a couple of hours and, um, and join this annual protest put on. Actually, I think it was organized by Catholics um, as a peace protest, right? So um, I think I was like 11, <clears throat> maybe, the first time I... Uh, considered should I engage in civil, civil disobedience and get arrested? Um, because what people would do is they would walk up to the cattle guard at the boundary of the test site on the road and kneel on the cattle guard and be arrested and taken away um, as, a, as an act of civil disobedience. And so I'm like 11 or 12 and say to my dad, dad, can I get arrested? <laughs> and he, He's like, I'm he so said, proud. Of course you can. I'm so proud. But here's what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I opted out. <laughs> um, I was 12 or 13 when I organized my first action, an Earth Day cleanup down at our local Lake Mead, which is in the news a lot lately. And um, nobody showed up except me and my mom. And that was a really amazing early lesson in... Um, failing forward, right? It didn't deter my interest in um, in organizing. It made me want to become a better organizer. And that was 30 plus years ago now. Um, when I was 14, 15, I would have my folks drive me into town to join letter writing campaigns against apartheid. And, you know, all of those things taught me some really important lessons early on, right? Like, be a better organizer, for one, um, but also that collective action actually could create change in the world. Because in the mid-90s, apartheid ended and the nuclear peace treaties were signed that you know halted most testing of nuclear armaments. And at a very critical point in my life, I came to believe that by banding together with other people, you can make the world a better place. And that has, that's what really, I think, shaped me was those two wins that I got to have a very tiny, tiny little part in, but still was a participant in. And now, as an adult, I've devoted most of my life to 
helping other people do the same thing, right? Band together to make the change that they want to see. Absolutely. And so, all right, from a young age, it's nuclear is the protest. Where does drug policy, drug reform come in? Because you sit at a really interesting intersection of cannabis and psychedelics in your professional career. You know, what what led you down this path then? So everything that I have ever, every action, every movement that I've ever been drawn to has fundamentally been about human rights. And um, so completely randomly, when in 2009, I, my neighbor was opening up a lab uh, in Colorado and uh, needed some help. I was on a sabbatical, but bored out of my head. He asked me to come and do like demolition and plumbing and runs to Home Depot. And uh, do you know how to do that up, stuff? Plumbing? I do. Yeah. What? Yeah. I just, you're such an I can also milk person. a cow, Anne. <laughs> oh my God. Renaissance woman. Renaissance woman. <laughs> I know, truly. <laughs> I'm just, uh, for all listeners, please know that I am an excellent member of the apocalypse team. Um, <laughs> I am not so like going to your bunker. <laughs> not immediate apocalypse, like right, not immediate right. aftermath. I can't, I can't propel an object toward a point or range of space. So I'm out on the shooting, but right. like once we're at farming, I'm your gal. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. <laughs> keep me around. <laughs> Anyhow, um, 2009, my neighbor's like, hey, come help me start up this lab. I show up the first day and I was like, so what, what are you testing? What's this, what's this analytical lab? And he said, oh, medical cannabis. I hadn't, I had had to give up smoking pot because it gave me a lot of anxiety a couple of years prior. And, you know, I don't know who actually remembers back in 2009, but there was not a lot of information on the internet about, uh, or information about your pot that, um, could help you figure out how to find cannabis that wasn't, that like su was suitable for you. And I was one of the many, many, many women who in their late twenties, like just started having anxiety reaction anyway. So I quit smoking pot, but I found it interesting. By the end of that day, I was, I think, vice president of business development for the first independent cannabis testing lab in the nation. Uh, never rent, went to Home Depot, but I did do some demo on some days when I was irritated. So, um, and I'm meeting all of these patients who, whose lives are being completely transformed through their use of cannabis, mothers whose lives were, young mothers with breast cancer whose lives were extended and who were in less pain and suffering so much less, um, and who were able to like have more time with their children before they passed, you know, or as they were trying to overcome their cancer. You know, older folks who were able to ameliorate their pain and, and suffering and, and I, as I was learning more and more about cannabis, I started to really understand how the drug war was just a daily violation of human rights for not just patients, but for drug users as well. And really started to understand like how broken our ideas as, as a society are about drugs and, and the people who use them. And that's the point at which I decided to devote, you know, as much of my career as was useful to ending the war on drugs and, and you know, 
mobilizing people in that regard. I feel like a lot of your um, efforts um, have been around building narratives and storytelling and really, um, you know, making people understand, um, I guess, correcting misconceptions. Um, and, and there is such value in that. Um, and, and that is truly, you know, marketing and messaging. And as like cheesy as it sounds, like we do this day in and day out, but, um, you know, the narratives in general are often, you know, marginalized in organizations, right? They want to like make their money. They want to, you know, get new customers that, you know, and so often, you know, a lot of this stuff just gets pushed aside. Um, you are among the first people to really talk, I think the first to talk about marketing and messaging at a cannabis conference in 2012. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the very first national cannabis business conference ever was in 2012, right after the election. We had just won. I was spokesperson and advocacy director for that campaign. And so I was exhausted, but really excited to go give a presentation on sort of cannabis marketing there at, at a on a panel and felt like the most important thing that I could talk about was how do you talk to women about this incredible substance that might really help them. Because back then, you know, if you tried to, if you Googled like cannabis for breast cancer, for example, every page was going that you could find was going to be a forum on the internet. And every forum was going to be topped with a, a banner ad for, I think it was called Legal Buds, that was a very young woman, naked, splayed out across a bed of cannabis buds with like piles of pot over her naughty bits. <laughs> that's it. Like that's what you saw <sighs> every time, every forum, yeah. right? And like, that's just not welcoming for mm -mm. women. Mm -mm. Especially women who are experiencing serious med medical conditions, right? Like, what we really needed to do was figure out how to speak to women in a way that was respectful and met them where they were at, right? The, and allowed them to glean the information that was available in, in an inviting fashion, right? We had to invite them in. And otherwise we were denying them the opportunity to benefit from this extraordinary medicine. And that's just not, you know, I mean, first of all, women make 85% of health, or at least at the time, made 85% of health decisions in their household and were, um, you know, half of the potential market, 51% of the potential market, right? Like you're, it's a bad business decision to just continually alienate women, particularly when it's healthcare decisions. So how do we do better with that? And that was the, the talk that I gave um, at that very first cannabis conference, national, the very first national cannabis business conference. Um, and, uh, and we're doing better now. It's not perfect, but we're doing a lot better wow. 13, 11 years later. Yes. Yeah, there's definitely been an evolution of it. But uh, I, I do want to continue to stick on this because, you know, I think 
what you've been talking about is like the real medical conversation. But since a lot of the um, uh, the states have switched to adult use, the medical has gotten like totally wiped out. It seems like like especially here in Arizona, like there's discounts for medical and that's like the whole conversation. And that's like where the, from a comm standpoint, like that's what you're getting um, pushed on. So like in that 11 years, like what's your interpretation of where comms on the, on the cannabis side have gone both from an adult use and a medical side? You know, one of the things that was most disappointing to me about 2013 was that I watched the conversation shift away from justice and human rights and the movement and toward the sort of commodification and glorification of the entrepreneur and the mogul. And, you know, you wound up with, um, you know, this like very commercial, um, very American, very commercial approach to, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And our heroes weren't Steve Fox and, you know, um, and uh, Lester Grinspoon and, you know, the people who had been in the movement for such a long time. The heroes that were placed in front of the American people were, you know, entrepreneurs and moguls who were not necessarily mogul is probably an exaggeration, but, you know, entrepreneurs who were taking planes, private planes, places and things like that. And that's not what it's about. So that was my first real heartbreak with cannabis was watching how quickly the capitalist conversation overtook the um, justice conversation. And it's something that I think about a lot now in psychedelia, right? Um, Because we're sort of at a very similar inflection point. And how do we make sure that we continue talking about justice is a, a question that I ask myself every single day. The um, the other piece of it, Nick, is exactly what you're talking about, right? That medical has sort of been usurped in so many ways by the adult use sort of cultural conversation. And listen, the reality is that adult use and and wellness use is probably far more common than medical use of cannabis. And, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons why it takes up more space. And um, for people who need cannabis for very serious medical conditions, um, we have to do a better job for those folks. And we're not. You know, thankfully, NIDA has finally started allowing you know, cannabis to be grown, appropriate cannabis to be grown in the U.S. for medical testing, for clinical trials. And I think that we're going to see a lot of development in the, like, high-quality CGMP, um, uh, very precise dosing, you know, um, of cannabis for things like epilepsy and, and, uh, serious cancers and whatnot. Um, I think that that is going to ultimately be the answer for a lot of people who require cannabis for treatment of very serious medical conditions, and it'll be covered by insurance. Their doctors are going to understand it. All of those things are extraordinary benefits, (laughs) right? For people with the most serious conditions and the wellness and, and social use market, is probably, you know, going to continue to take up more space in our, you know, the in the dispensaries. Um, but in this interstitial period, I think that patients are really losing out. 
you know, they're losing out on the opportunity to speak with cannabis specialists who can help them truly understand how it's going to affect their bodies. And I don't know about all any of you or either of you or any of our listeners, but like, if I have one more bud tender talk down to me as if I'm just a middle-aged lady who doesn't know anything about cannabis, you know? Oh my I God. Can't. I, I, can't. I can't imagine you walking into a dispensary and someone trying to like mansplain you. Uh, yeah. It's like, did you... You're 22. I will take you down. <laughs> I've been smoking weed longer than you've been alive. <laughs> Come on now. Yeah. But I mean, listen, I get it, right? Like, I, I don't fit the the perception of a cannabis user, much less a someone who was at one time a you know a leading expert. But like the, um, but the, um. Yeah, just that experience. I can only imagine what that experience would be like if I were dealing with a, with a serious medical condition, not just my rampant insomnia. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I remember, you know, I've known people who, you know, had disclosed their cannabis use to their GP, um, you know, and, and he, you know, the GP was happy to hear it or whatever. Uh, but then they were denied... Um, life insurance. Um, and, and so all of this like stuff, like, you know, that you want to, you want to, and like now they're saying, you know, you really need to talk to your doctor if you're about to undergo surgery, um, you know, and, t and disclose your cannabis use, because that may affect, you know, how, how the anesthesia affects you. But like, if you do that, there are still so many other bad things that can happen. Um, and, you know, I think we, we just haven't gotten to a point yet where like the medical community and real life has, has caught up, um, or the medical community has caught up with real life. Absolutely. Um, but I do want to go back to, uh, the, the justice conversation. Um, and that, you know, certainly my work with maps and, and, you know, the, I've, I've been reading a lot of books, um, about the drug war, um, and drug users are still really familiar targets of discrimination and, and it's accepted discrimination. Like, you know, um, people talk about things like junkies and, uh, and, and addicts and, um, you know, almost as if they're subhuman, um, and it's rooted in, in centuries of racism. Um, and there are way too many people sitting in jail. Um, but, <laughs> let's if Betty Aldworth was tapped as Biden's drugs are with a blank <laughs> check and a free reign to enact actual policy, what would drug policy look like under Czar Betty? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's dreamy. <laughs> so I got to join 40 of the world's leading experts in, I think, 2019 in Vancouver for a couple of days to sit around tables with charts and graphs and, you know, tons of reference material to, like, actually craft the ideal drug policies, the ideal regulatory policies, if drugs were legal, like, drug by drug. I think we chose seven of the most commonly used drugs in the world and sat down in breakout groups and had these conversations, uh, like very detailed conversations about what that would look like. You know, not thinking about social norms, not thinking about stigma, just people who really, really knew drugs and the people who used them. So academics, policy experts, activists, um, and people who use drugs. 
right? Important um, to include them in the conversation. Yeah. How about? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What year was this? I think it was 2019, 2018 okay. or 2019. Okay. So um, it, you can find more about it uh, at regulationworks.org, I believe. But we'll put, I'll send it to you so you can put it in the show notes. And this project was just extraordinary because we got to really talk in detail. So, you know, what I would like from a regulatory perspective, every drug would be regulated according to its risks, right? So drugs that carry very little risk like cannabis for most people would generally be available to anyone 21 or up. Well, probably 16, but I would have to, I'd have to do some research on that one once I got the job. Um, We're not holding you to any of this, by the way, Perfect. (laughs) but we will send a note to Joe Biden. Perfect. Love it. Um, The place that I think one of the, the substances that I find most interesting to think about from this perspective is opio is op- heroin, right? Opioids in general, because we really don't understand as a society or culture, like how to approach opioids at all. And if we were to today provide people who are addicted to or dependent on on opioids with safe, you know, measured doses that were essentially available medically. And we were to remove all of the chaos of acquiring drugs and, you know, using drugs in unsafe settings or in settings that carry higher risks, et cetera, et cetera. Pe- most people who use opioids would be able to stabilize their lives. We use opioids chaotically, which, by the way, is only about 20% of opioid users, but um, stabilize their lives and um, essentially function just fine, regardless of what, if they were using opioids or if they chose to change their relationship with them, right? The thing that, that causes people so much harm is the chaos of acquiring drugs and using them in unsafe settings. Individuals and society, right? So we wouldn't have to worry about unregulated markets anymore. Every market would be regulated. And if somebody walked into, say, a drugstore and said, I'd like to try heroin, the knowledgeable consultant in that store would say, well, have you taken the class to get your permit? so that you can understand how to use it safely. And have you ever tried opium tea, poppy tea, sorry, poppy tea or opium gum, which is a lower dose, lower risk um, substance that might actually suit your needs, whatever they may be. And what are those needs? And why are you, why is this your desire, right? If we were having those real conversations with people, when they're thinking about using drugs, I think that we could really change a great deal about how, about the negative outcomes of substance use in people's lives, because we would be providing a supportive environment for um, individual analysis 
right, of how substances impact our lives. It's not about the drug. It's about an individual's relationship with the drug, right? I And this wouldn't just be for drugs like opium and methamphetamine and cocaine and psychedelics. We would do the same with alcohol. We would do the same with pharmaceuticals. We would do the same with, you know, with any drug because any drug is going to have an impact on your life and any drug you have a relationship with. And so allowing people safe space to explore that relationship and really understand it, I think is, is oftentimes the key to overcoming a substance use disorder or something uh, of the sort. And we would also have a much better understanding of like why people have substance use disorders and like hint, it's not the drugs. It's, it's like, trauma right i think it's really interesting because i 100 percent agree like creating a more supportive less chaotic environment is absolutely necessary but i think one part of the stigma that doesn't get discussed enough is the stigma that the medical community already has against these drugs these preconceived notions of you know what it mean, what lsd means or what you know opioid addiction looks like and, and all these things and it, and it has such a negative connotation around it like, I, th I think your view is something that's like, you know, ideally that's where we can eventually get to down the line when, when it comes to talking about these drugs. But, you know, you're doing some of that work at MAPS right now on in encouraging the medical community to, you know, explore this and, and look into this. So what have you found to be successful when, when presenting like, hey, here's a novel way to administer these types of drugs? I mean, listen, the, the clinical trials speak for themselves and that's the language the doctors talk, right? One of the reasons that physicians are still so reluctant to cannabis oftentimes, you know, as, as a medical tool, as, a, as a, a recommendation, eventually prescription, is because clinical research has, in particularly in the US, has been blocked for so long. And so they're not getting the information in the language that they need. This is why it's so critical that we do the clinical trials of cannabis um, so that we're providing um, medical professionals information in the language they speak. And so the strategy of you know, Rick Doblin's strategy of, you know, let's spend 40 years figuring out how to get, I mean, he didn't think it was going to take 40 years. None of us did, I don't think, but... Um, you know, spend the time and, and the resources to bring psychedelics through clinical trials was absolutely brilliant because this is the language that medical professionals, mental health professionals need and insurers and the FDA, et cetera, et cetera. And consumers. But, and you know? consumers. Absolutely. Yeah. Or patients. Same, same. <laughs> right. Ish. I mean... What we see, to your point, Anne, like, um, is that, you know, as this clinical information becomes more and more readily available, people are asking themselves the question of like, well, maybe I don't have PTSD, maybe I don't have severe depression, but I've got something that is bothering me and maybe this could help, right? And, and so... Um, so we see things like the psilocybin services initiative in Oregon and, and Colorado and, and an opportunity to 
um, not just make these substances available for medical clinical use, but also for people to consider as wellness aids. And I think that that's, you know, listen, I've, I have enjoyed psychedelics for, um, uh, recreation for, um, wellness and, uh, when I'm trying to work through something really hard. Right. And that is, um, all of those uses have been very constructive for me as an individual. Um, they're not going to be constructive for everybody, but like, I think that all of those uses are valid and, and, and so you, the consumer does become curious. The patient of course is who we need to focus on because those are the people who need help right now and most desperately. And that's where, um, you know, one of the interesting things about being at maps is that it has really allowed me to understand like just how profoundly, detrimental trauma is to our society, right? To people and to society. And if we can start to solve some of that, then, you know, many of the problems that are so linked with the war on drugs, you know, will, through lots of effort, lots of action, you know, we will be able to begin unraveling them. You said something I, I don't know, a couple of months ago and it stuck with me and I'm not going to get it right. But, um, you said something like a lot of, ther a lot of therapy happens on the dance floor or a lot of like, what was, oh. do you remember that? <laughs> do you remember yeah, what that was? Yeah. What? what I said was, I know a lot of people who have healed themselves on the dance floor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, uh, yeah. And I think that they are, they're, they're intertwined and there's a, you know, there's a reason why it makes you feel good and it makes you think deeply and feel deeply and, you know, all of that other stuff. But, well, and, but okay. let me, uh, let me say this. Like I do, I know a lot, I, I have healed some hurt on the dance floor, right? I know, a, I do know a lot of people who have healed themselves on the dance floor. That is not the answer for people who are experiencing serious mental health conditions. And I like, I have to put on my maps hat for a moment and say like, you know, it's, um, while that is true and while people ought to be able to, you know, put substances into their body without fear of criminalization or excess risk um, because of prohibition and a poison drug supply, like all of those things remain true. And for people with serious mental health conditions, it's really important that they are able to approach those and address those in a supportive environment with people, mental health practitioners who are well-trained, who are, um, vetted who are able to provide the supportive environment for the person to learn how to heal themselves. Cause that's fundamentally what you're doing, right? You're learning how to heal yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's, so let's turn to maps. Um, you know, we've kind of talked around the edges of it, but, um, really in the last uh, few years, um, I mean, more than a few years, but you've been known as the the force and the money behind the MDMA clinical trials for PTSD. And Rick had this vision of of taking it through the FDA process, which has really been revolutionary. But MAPS, the org, is different from MAPS PBC, which is the the drug development arm um, of the of the effort. Uh, can you talk about that relationship? Because I don't know that a lot of people understand the difference. Yeah, absolutely. So. MAPS org, um, where I work, is the 501c3, the nonprofit organization. And 
has funded to this point all of the studies of MDMA for PTSD. So we're the sponsor of those studies. And those trials began in the the non uh, well no actually there were human healthy volunteer trials in the 90s but the first trial of MDMA for PTSD that we were able to conduct once those healthy volunteer trials were completed and some of the safety questions were answered started um, in the early 2000s and so maps has been organized maps organized and sponsored those trials for um, just over a decade and then in 2014, MAPS founded, MAPS the nonprofit founded MAPS Public Benefit Corporation with some of the people who had been organizing those trials at the, at the nonprofit in order to house the clinical trial development, the drug development, and all of the um, sort of FDA process and, and negotiations and all, all of those, uh, all, of, all of the clinical pieces. Uh, therapist education programs. Um, and so MAPS PBC has been holding that for almost 10 years now as a subsidiary of MAPS, the nonprofit. And they are um, just on the edge right now of the greatest accomplishment in psychedelic-assisted therapy history, which is uh, submitting the new drug application to the FDA, expected in just a handful of months. Um, and within 10 months after that, but probably faster, uh, the FDA will issue its decision. And based on all available evidence so far, we uh, anticipate that the FDA is likely to um, to approve MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD as a treatment that will become available to people sometime in 2024. Woohoo! Extremely yeah. exciting stuff. Um, so this actually never happens, but but we have a caller, Nick, who's yeah, calling yeah. in. This is the first time ever. We've had Ever. a caller lot into I don't know who I don't record. know who it is, uh, but stand caller, by. Caller, welcome, welcome to the Green Rush. Uh, who is this? Hello, welcome to the Green Rush. This is your sometimes host, Chris Crane. <laughs> I hear we have Betty Allworth on the line. Chris, Chris Crane. <laughs> <laughs> Betty, how are you? I'm great, man. I have been. Uh, you've been on my call list for, well, far too long. How are you? I am terrific. I heard that you were going to be on the Green Rush today, and I told uh, Anna and Nick that you had to, uh, they had to call me in. They had to I let me it. dial in because I, I couldn't miss a chance to chat with Betty. It's been too long. Far, far too long. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Chris. It's really great to hear your voice. <laughs> Likewise, likewise. Well, we'll do like an actual like friend catch up here soon. As I've been thinking about you also, we need to do that sometime soon. But uh, you know, this is for listeners, and uh, so I'm going to join in the uh, I'm going to join in the conversation here. Excellent. Well, we were just talking about how uh, MDMA for PTSD will be evaluated by the FDA uh, sometime later this year. I cannot wait. As you know, I've been following along with your work and, and Chris Lotlicker and Maps and everything you guys are doing, and it's fantastic. You know, I, I 
have a, a few questions for you, and I don't know if you guys got to these at the beginning. I apologize. I've not read the script. So, uh, no, let's go. Like, go for it. Shoot me, shoot me down, shoot me down if, uh, if, if you guys went through these. But, I mean, really, you know, Betty, you, I mean, you are an icon in the cannabis industry in, and, and even more so in the cannabis movement, right, from your time on I-64 to Students for Sensible Drug Policy to, um, uh, to, to, to NCIA. So, I mean, I kind of want to know, like, how has it been now? It's been over a year, maybe a couple of years now. Like, how has the transition been from, you know, the, 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 what you've been doing in sort of in cannabis, and I guess in drug policy with SSDP, but to the, like, the very unique psychedelics and sort of pharma focused work that you're now doing at MAPS? Oh my gosh, Chris, it has been so wild because. I have spent my, you know, the bulk of my career figuring out how to communicate to people um, about sort of social issues, right, um, and regulatory issues and how they impact, you know, people socially. But then to have to learn how to communicate science well has been an amazing, amazing education for me. And it continues to this day. I, I've, I'm surrounded by brilliant people who explain to me the nuances and differences between these terms that are um, that like you wouldn't expect there to be a difference between um, you know effective and efficacious. But there is, right? And so, you know, having now, don't ask me to explain that to you today without my notes in front of me because I can't. But <laughs> there is. Um, and it has well, been right, to me. means something works, and efficacious means, efficacious means you can prove it, right? Um, she just maybe. said, it's "Don't been ask a minute her." Since I've had to go into this, she one. just said, "Don't ask her." <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving the, the absolute layman's explanation, right? It's the difference between like it works and you can prove in a clinical setting that it works. I'm pretty sure that's correct. We'll put that one in show notes too. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but like, but you know, for, for a really, really long time, just as a, a lay reader um, who loves reading about studies um, and always has, like I, I referred to myself just before I started at MAPS, of course, COVID kicked off. And, um, and shortly after I started referring to myself as a COVID hipster because I was like on the edge, right? I was, I like always, I always had the, the drops, you know, as soon as they were out and the album drops, I paper drops, but like, you know, I was reading everything as soon as it came out. I was reading the, uh, you know, I had the B sides because I was reading all of the papers in detail. It's, anyway. So, I've always been fascinated by this and always really disappointed by the way scientific information is presented to people and, you know, in headlines and in, in articles where it's so clear that, you know, findings are being overblown and this, that, and the other. So to learn how to thread that needle as a communicator myself, when our, the results have been so incredibly promising and still like we have to, you know, really be careful about not overstating what's happening has been an amazing, amazing education. And I don't run communications any longer for MAPS PBC. I did for two years. Um, but I am, but like the, having the opportunity to do all of that writing has been really interesting. I've loved that. Um, 
It was also, Chris, as I think you'll remember, like, it was really a difficult decision for me to choose to work for a psychedelics-focused organization. Um, you know, drug policy writ large is um, where my passion lies and what I'm here for, right? Ending the war on drugs. And I had to, you know, really check in with myself and, and do some research and reading and talking to mentors like you and, and, and others about whether or not a move into psychedelics was going to be an effective way to continue my work on the war on drugs. And thankfully, MAPS is an organization that does believe that the war on drugs should be ended um, writ large and does take a strong harm reduction approach even to stigmatized drugs like heroin and methamphetamine. But the, um, you know, so, so those parts were easy, but really understanding how psychedelics were a vehicle by which we can help people reframe their relationships with drugs, whether that, you know, and reframe their thinking about, um, you know, drugs from a regulatory um, or a personal perspective was, I felt like a real opportunity to continue the work in this new and exciting way. That's fantastic. So I, I, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. I think we could drill, drill down a little bit more on that in terms of psychedelics helping people reframe their relationship with drugs. So t like talk to me a little bit more about that. What does that, what is, what does that mean to you? And how does, how have you seen that work in, in practice? I'm going to actually relate this to cannabis again, right? So when we were messaging about cannabis um, in 2012 on amendment 64, it was always very important for us to not be stigmatizing people who used other drugs while we were saying this one particular drug ought to be legal for adult use to make sure that in our messaging, we were talking about regulating cannabis in a way that would put questions in the, in the audience's mind that would hopefully eventually bring them to thinking about other drugs in the same way. And we still get to do that with psychedelics, right? If we're talking about the regulation of psychedelics um, with enough care and, and, and compassion, then what that will ultimately do, I think, is allow people to start asking the question, well, why aren't we treating heroin in a similar way from a regulatory and social use perspective, right? And so you you seed questions for people to start asking themselves, and it takes a lot of time. But what we've seen over the last decade is, and decade plus, is a growing discontent with the war on drugs amongst Americans overall, a loss of faith in those tactics. And I have to you know, believe that, uh, in fact, the evidence shows that these conversations that we're having about drugs that are, that have medical, like, you know, these promising medical uses are starting to um, make people think a little more deeply about how we treat drugs as a society overall and how we pe treat people who use drugs. Now, that is unfortunately not as advanced in the justice conversation, the, the carceral conversation as it should be. Um, but we even see some movement there and, and some promising indications that, you know, that 
the Sentencing Commission and, and Congress might eventually, hopefully in the not too distant future, and state legislatures start taking different approaches. And of course, the ultimate expression of that was the passage of all drug decrim in Oregon a handful of years ago. I think that we can start to expect more and more bills like that, initiatives like that across the country that recognizes the humanity of people, even if they use drugs. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I know we actually don't have a whole lot more time. I know you've already, you guys have already been on for, uh, for, for close to an hour here, so I don't want to take up too much time. I did want to ask something because I know there's a, there's a lot of crossover listeners here between uh, the Green Rush and Marijuana Today, in particular the original Marijuana Today cast. Uh, and you work with one of those original cast members. I should say work for one of those cast members um, whose voice would be familiar to some of these listeners that probably haven't heard from him in a long time. So how has it been working for Chris Lotliger? Well, it's an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it has been, it, it's really interesting because I've been friends with Chris and he's been a, a mentor and an ally since I started at SSDP 10 years ago now. Um, and, uh, but have, I've just been working with, for him for the last couple of years and, um, you know, he's the executive of the director things. of MAPS, so that's why we just want to... Or is that his recent, his title? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So just for listeners, that's who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for um, those who don't, yeah, so that's right. For those who don't go back to the old podcast days. That's right. <laughs> um, it's been really, really interesting to work more closely, especially around our messaging and, and um, how we're approaching things. And I will say that... Um, you know, to to no surprise, um, one of the things that I have uh, found to be really great about working with Chris is that um, he holds ethical lines uh, as strongly as I do. And um, and so when things get tough, um, he's always been a really great ally. Um, he, he thinks he's funnier than he is. <laughs> <laughs> But we all knew that. Is he already. walking around in his spacesuit? <laughs> he does sometimes show up in his flight suit to meetings. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. 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 No, it's it's been an adventure and it's been really fun and I'm I'm excited to be able to work on ending the drug war with him in this new way. It's been it's been great. The goal is to yeah, get I mean, him on the pod. He's he's been anti. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> You think you think you think somebody who 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 you know, hosted a podcast for years would be uh, you know a little more eager to get on the podcast, but um, I know that's a, that's an issue these days. Um, but this is not a Chris well, Lockwood podcast. This is a Betty Aldworth podcast. <laughs> one <laughs> one of the really fun things about Chris uh, has been sort of watching his vision for psychedelic science 2023 come together. We have been, um, it's one of the first things that he and I started working on when I joined at MAPS and it quickly left my area of responsibility because it is a monster to organize. Um, and I had plenty of other things to wrestle with, but uh, that's been a really fun thing. And I'm super excited to see sort of the conference of our share, our, our collective dreams come together this summer. So talk about that. What a, give, a, give listeners the details. Those who don't know what Psychedelic Science 2023 is, what so, is it? 
Um, <laughs> it is so like the last conference, the last big psychedelics conference that's going to happen before we have the first approvals of psychedelic assisted therapies from the FDA, which is going to be a real breakthrough moment, right? Um, the tagline is be part of the breakthrough. And like, it really is like, this is a, this is such an incredible moment. And I think it's going to be, I mean, it's certainly going to be the smallest psychedelic sci the most intimate psychedelic science conference, uh, that will ever happen again. Um, we are expecting eh, 8,000 people in Denver. <laughs> the last one was 3000 six years ago. Um, we've got, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, we've got eight tracks, uh, eight stages. We've got some really, really exciting, um, speakers coming, like not we announced I, Melissa Etheridge this morning. Oh, we did. Good, good, good. Yes. <laughs> um, Melissa Etheridge, who also, uh, worked with us on the 2012 campaign in Colorado. So that'll be a fun callback if I have the chance to chat with her. Um, but also all of the psychedelic experts, um, you know, all of the folks who you see um, reflected in the stories about, you know, the therapists and the trainers and the, and the folks who are doing the work out there on psychedelic assisted therapy, the activists, the policymakers, the, you know, um, I'm really, really looking forward myself to the um, gatherings uh, for individual communities. I'm going to be hosting a movement building session. So sort of an unconference, like let's get all of the movement builders into a room and have a conversation about what it means to build movement in, in psychedelics. Um, there will be student gatherings and veterans gatherings and um, gatherings for Asian Americans in psychedelics and um, black people in psychedelics and, f um, you know, folks who are particularly interested in plant medicines. And I mean, everything that you can imagine in the psychedelic ecosystem is going to be represented there in one way or another at the Colorado Convention Center. Um, and, and the experientials are going to be amazing. We've been joking that it's like, you know, South by Southwest meets Black Rock City, you know, meets the clinic um, because there will be great art and great, you know, uh, performances and lots and lots of dancing. So much dancing. Yeah. It, yeah. It's really an event for everyone, you know, scientists, researchers, psychedelic enthusiasts, therapists, everyone. It's going to be June 19th through 25th. Like Betty said, at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver, um, we'll have a link in the show notes where you guys can learn more about the agenda, who some of the featured speakers are that have been announced. And you can follow as they get announced over the next couple of weeks some more. And there's going to be a special discount code for folks that listen to this podcast and follow KCSA, KCSA 15. That'll get you 15% off discount for going to Psychedelics 2023. So we'll include that in the show notes and, and in all our social media promotions. So make sure you use that code um, for anyone that's interested in coming out. Um, I will, uh, I'll be, I'll, I'll be, I'll be using the code myself. I'll be there. I can't wait. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. Come see us in the media HQ. Yeah. I will. I will come see you there and hopefully get the, I know you're going to be busy, but hopefully get a little bit of time to just like, just hang out. We are going to find that time. Absolutely.
Betty, is there one thing at the conference that you're most excited for to, to kind of, I know you ran through a whole bunch of things there, but you know, what, what's the one thing that you, you, it, for our listeners with that, that gets you most pumped for it? I mean, I don't know, like a lot of you have been out at conferences and out in the world. Um, in my family, we have some autoimmune disorder stuff. And so we've had to be extra cautious and we haven't been out in the world again, except for, I haven't been out in the world except for some very, um, special moments. Um, and I am so excited to see my people again, you know, it's just been a really, really long time. And, um, and so honestly, Nick, like, that's not a, that's not necessarily a thing that's going to be a fit for everybody, especially those folks who've been able to be out there more, but like, I'm going to wear a mask for a week. Damn it. <laughs> I'm going to, um, I'm going to, you know, make sure that I can, you know, give squeezes to all of the people who I haven't squeezed in a long time. And uh, I'm just, I'm so looking forward to reconnecting with people in person and having the chance to, you know, learn together and, and, um, and have those conversations that only happen when you're at a conference, you know, and dance together and, you know, experience the art together. But I think that for me, those community conversations, the community gatherings, um, that's the richest part of any conference for me, where you're able to gather with a smaller group of like-minded people or people with similar experiences, life experiences or work experiences or passions, and have those really rich conversations that are, you know, group dialogues as opposed to presentations like that, I think for me is the most exciting part. And I, I think that for most people who come to the conference, there's going to be something like that, that will be the thing that they hold in their hearts for and minds for a long time after the conference is over. Well, Betty, you have been amazingly gracious with your time. I know we're running a little bit long, but I have one more question for you. Yes, ma'am. Um, MAPS is still a philanthropic organization, meaning Very that much it so. runs on donors. Plug it, baby. How can people get involved? Oh, my goodness. We are building some really exciting programming, you know, with MDMA for PTSD coming to the end of its drug development. I mean, obviously, there's so much more to study, but getting to the end of the primary um, drug development pipeline and, and moving to FDA approval, um, we get to really be focusing on the other parts of the core maps mission. I get to really be focusing on the other parts of the core maps mission and talking so much more about these things. We have really exciting educational opportunities coming up. Very, um, uh, you know, like groundbreaking things that we're developing, like a first responders training program so that EMTs and police officers and, and firefighters and hospital workers in places where um, psychedelics might be decriminalized or where communities are just concerned about making sure they're responding appropriately to psych psychedelic emergencies are able to get the training they need to, to handle those well. Um, so that first responders program will be rolling out this summer and we're working hard on it now. 
We have some other really amazing um, educational programs just for lay people. Psychedelic Fundamentals is available on our website. It's a digital learning program with videos and supplemental materials that people can participate in and learn the basics of, you know, psychedelics, harm reduction history, et cetera. Um, and if you are a fan of MAPS and, and are um, wondering how you can support our work, you can just go to maps.org slash donate and you can uh, right there on our website, make a gift to continue our work to create appropriate medical, social and legal contexts for the safe use of psychedelics and cannabis. I love it. There will be a link to that in our show notes too. We hope that you guys click on that and uh, not not only check out some of their amazing content, but also um, donate if you are able. That would be amazing. Betty Aldor, thank you so, so much. I enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think we all enjoyed the conversation. Chris, thanks for crashing the party, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for, let, thanks for letting me. Betty, I miss podcasting. Well, I, miss just, I miss you plain and simple, but I miss podcasting with you. So this has been, oh, this has been fun. Hopefully we'll, find, yeah, hopefully we'll find another time to, another excuse to, to do it again soon. Yes, absolutely. I would love that. It was so much fun. Thank you all for having me and um, tune in next week for Fruit Trees with Ann and Betty. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's going to be our next podcast. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Again, huge thanks to Betty Aldworth, Director of Comms and Marketing for MAPS. You can check out all the great work that MAPS is doing by visiting their website, maps.org. While you're there, figure out how you can be part of the community, whether it's through donation or volunteering your time some way. They would love to have you. Um, also, we want to see you at Psychedelic Science 2023 in Denver this June. Go to psychedelicscience.org to get your tickets. Make sure you use the code KCSA15 when registering. You'll get a 15% off discount for, um, for all of that. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys all there this summer. Um, and as always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, Chris, Lewis, Phil, any of us, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. You can email us at anything that you want us to be talking about. We love to hear those inputs. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush and your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take.